Well, welcome everybody. I am very excited to see you. Um, let's see, this is Second Sunday Readings. My name is Sean Killingsworth and I'm the curator and host of this series. And I'm really happy that you can all be here today for some super amazing poetry. Today's featured poets are Elizabeth M. Castillo, Jen Givan, and Jose Hernandez Diaz. I am so thrilled to have this lineup today. I can't even, I, I can't tell you how like beyond excited I was that they all agreed to come and read for our series and at the same time. So like, I'm ugh, can't even speak. I'm so happy to have them here. Um, Elizabeth M. Castillo is a British Mauritian poet, writer, two-time Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net nominee. She explores the different countries and cultures she grew up with, as, as well as themes of race, ethnicity, motherhood, womanhood, language, love, loss and grief, and a touch of magical realism. Her writing has been featured in many publications and anthologies in the UK, the US, Australia, Mexico, and the Middle East. Her bilingual debut collection, and please correct my pronunciation if I butcher this, Cajoncito, Cajoncito. Uh, Cajoncito. Poems on Perfect. love, loss, y otras locuras. Um, yeah. No? Yes, perfect. Oh, oh awesome. <laughs> uh, it's for sale on Amazon, and her debut chapbook, Not Quite an Ocean, will be published by Nine Pens Press uh, very, very shortly. Uh, you can connect with her on Twitter and Instagram at EMC Writes Poetry or on her website, ElizabethMCastillo.net. So Elizabeth, if you are all set, uh, we'd love for you to take it away. I am. Can you just let me know if this volume is okay? Because I do have a sleeping child about two meters away from me. It's 3 a.m. in Mauritius. Oh my gosh. Yes, you're fine. I can hear you can loud you and clear. Okay. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us at three in the morning. I can't believe it. I thought you were in Paris, which no. would have been bad enough. But uh... no, 3 a.m. <laughs> but I thought if we're going to set an alarm for the middle of the night, might as well go for it, you know. Well, I appreciate your dedication to poetry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so let's get started. One second, please. Okay. At least you'll hear me read poetry, hey? All right, so I'd like to start with uh, my book, Caroncito, as you mentioned, is uh, bilingual. I don't know, I think, yeah, you said it was bilingual, English and Spanish. Just to clarify, because most people actually don't know this until they hear me speak, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, um, which I think both of my other speakers are, poets that I love and admire. It's lovely to meet you in person, Jen and Jose. Um, or oh, in person, virtually, as close as we're going to get anytime soon. And um, so Garantito is bilingual and it just turned one. So I'm incredibly proud of these poems and even prouder as a mother is on their birthday. Yay, that's for me. So I'm just going to read a couple of poems from here, if you will indulge me. Um, <clears throat> the first poem I'm going to read is a bilingual one. It's an after poem based on E.E. Uh, e. Cummings's um, I Carry Your Heart. And it's called Je Vivo en Tu Corazón. Yo vivo en tu corazón. I swam up through the arteries. I painted its walls and mis colores. Lined a suelo with my plants. Usé una canción que no tiene letras. Fought the battle that's already been won. Watched the slow, steady pace of the snail. Dejé el amanecer. Partir en dos. The horizon. Es una cosa tan chiquita que no escucha nada de razón. 
Me llevas contigo. Where you go, I go. Me llevas contigo. Yo vivo en tu corazón. That was I live in your heart, Major Vivo and Deferasen, one of my bilingual uh, poems. Carantito, um, as you mentioned, is, is divided into three sections, love, loss, y otras locuras. Um, and it was written from the perspective, Carantito means little box or little drawer. And uh, it was a whole bunch of poems basically that came from a place of, of grief and, and feelings and very deeply personal poems that I didn't think were worth very much to anyone except for me. But then little by little, as I started to send them out for publication or show them to people, they actually did speak to people. And what I love about poetry is that it transforms itself, a poem transforms itself into whatever the, the reader needs. So my poem that had been written about the loss of my child, the baby that I lost when I suffered a miscarriage, someone else interpreted it as the loss of a loved one or, or someone took it as a poem of encouragement. And I really love that. And um, and one of the one of the one of the most encouraging, I think, pieces of feedback that I received on Carantito is when people have said that they it has helped them somehow to work through their grief or has given them words for something. And I I, I mean, I mean, let's face it, none of us are in this for the money, right? Because there's none, but that is the closest we'll get <laughs> to the richest we can get as poets. Um, so this is another poem that's multilingual, and it was one of the first that was written for Carantito. It was first published in um, Pollock's journal. And uh, it's called Paris, mi-octobre. I stand unsteady before the room. À Paris, le mois d'octobre. What am I to teach them? How can I show them what it is to talk? To cut the thoughts down to word shapes and coax the heart and tongue into speaking. Conditionals, perhaps, the language of what could never be or what might have been. English is forgiving. It has no proper subjunctive, but it makes provisions for the unreal and it allows the imaginary its own clauses. And this classroom that I love, this stage, this castle, is a prison, is a desert, is a small, small box. The French have no word for kindness, which is very telling, I find. They also struggle with a thistle, a thorn, thirsty and a thunderstorm, but Spanish, Spanish has three words for love. The time for Paseo is behind us. Le Pont Piraquiem, le Grand Palais, les champs, la butte et le marais. The French and their lisping will just have to wait. Now that I have only myself and my thoughts for company. I told you once, and it was in Spanish, Criollo. I can hardly remember, but I told you once, the heart was never designed to break in Paris or in English. Thank you. Um, and I'd like, I think, to read just one last one from Cajoncito before we move on to some things I've been working on more recently. Um, I'm, in, I'm in this sort of phase of love-hate with this book where I, I still love the poems, but I'm a little bit sick of them. <laughs> um, I just like to read my last one, which is one of my favorites. Um, it's called Gathering My Children to Me. It was published by Bandit Fiction. I can actually find it. 
And I love this poem. It was originally written as a bit of a joke, uh, making fun of myself and a bit self-deprecating, but I, it's, I, it's come to mean a, a whole lot to me on a personal level. Gathering my children to me. Come on, unbending sense of justice. Come on, bitter, bitter sting of betrayal. Come on, poetic sensibility. You're needed elsewhere. We're leaving. Explanations, justification, reasons. Hold each other's hand now. Settle down. Come, fresh tears spilled into clean laundry. Come, those few thrilling seconds. I hold myself under water in the bath. Come, sweet, bewitching intensity. Step this way, total, regard for dis total disregard for consequence. Come, pride. Come, faith. Come. Bloody scuffed up knees, it's time to go. We've long outstayed our welcome. Come here, crippling need to please. Come on, hurry up, food intolerance and chronic pain. Come along now, depression, out you get, stretch your legs a little. Come on now, breath caught in my chest that could be asthma, but I'm pretty sure it's regret. Come here, sensitive skin, eclectic Spotify playlist. Come here right now, childhood obsession with dinosaurs. Get down from there, incorruptible self-insurance. Come procrastination, I'm not going to say it twice. Come here, self-flagellation. Come increasingly perpetual anxiety. Come wit, come dry, absurdist humor. Yes, you can sit up here by me. Come on over here, darkest of all dark clouds. I've made room enough for you in the sky. Come now, ambition, you wait your turn. Come, easy forgiveness. Come, too many reasons why. Get back here, lust. You have done enough. Settle down, bruised and vindictive pride. Let's go, come on now, we're leaving. We can't stay a minute longer. Watch out for incoming traffic, that's it. Hope against all odds. Right, then left, then right again. Come on now, no time, no reasons, no chance to say goodbye. We should have been long gone by now. Thank you. That's my last one from Cajoncito. How am I doing for time? I'm terrible at timing these things, I'm sorry. You're, we're not ready to pull out the, the hook yet, so okay, right. <laughs> you're good, you're good. I'd like to read, um, I'd like to read something, because I'm in Mauritius, I'm going to read some of my Mauritian poems, what I'm working on at the moment, for those of you who don't know, Mauritius is a very small island in the middle of literally nowhere, in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It was populated by the Portuguese, then the, then the, the English, then the French, who imported slaves, who imported Indian indentured laborers, Chinese merchants, Arabs. So it's a real, what they call melting pot, but not really a melting pot because nobody actually mixes. And so there's a lot of racial issues. There's a lot of um, what we call malaise and discontent in our identity. And so one of the things that I found myself writing about is that sort of junction of identities in which I find myself as a Creole woman, also a Creole woman who is living abroad from Mauritius. Um, I think anybody who's part of a diaspora, maybe that's also why I find a lot of the uh, Latin Latino writers who write in the US, even though I'm not Latin myself, that sense of distance uh, from something of being and not being and connect, connecting, but not connecting. I find that poetry, like I know a lot of Jose's poetry, I love it and I relate to it on that level because there's, there's that sort of isolation. I don't know, I think, I think as long as people are, will leave their country, we will always feel it. Um, so it needs to be written about. Um, and that's one thing that I'm working at the moment, uh, a collection of poetry that's quite experimental in some sense about, about Mauritius and the sense of home or lack of sense of home, uh, sense of belonging or lack of sense of belonging. And I found personally, even though these poems are full of grief and bleeding, that writing about Mauritius is somehow a lot more difficult and a lot more painful. 
So I'm a lot proud of these poems that I actually managed to get out there. Um, this first one is called Beneath the Waves of Tamarind Bay, Tamarind being um, the surfing central hub of Mauritius. Beneath the waves of Tamarind Bay. I found some things you wouldn't believe. What I found as I held myself beneath the storm, beneath that raging murky blue that knows to break so innocently along the shore, I found a continent to itself. I found my pride and the fault line that connects this small island to the rest of the world. I found diamonds and I found myself down there thrashing struggling to breathe. Beneath those waves, cradled by the curve of the beach, I found broken glass, still sharp from days before. I found more regrets than I care to admit. I found blood spilled, black and brown blood of my people that even sharks won't touch, respectful as they are of injustice and languages that are not their own. From beneath those waves, I looked up, I looked, up, I looked past myself, perched on a board from which, unwieldy, I will never be untethered. Looked past the children and their peals of laughter, past the women and their bodies that could scream no more, past the thick coat of oil that clung, slick to the surface, and I saw the southern sun and its struggles battling to reach me, to take purchase on the dusty seafloor. I saw half my face in the turquoise sky and felt the coral clutching my heel and the pull of the earth beneath the sand and the salt at the core calling me home. Thank you. So that was one of my ones. It was actually, this one is actually, it's been published in Street Cake, a UK experimental magazine. And it's actually the shape of a wave. It was my first experimental piece. And, uh, and I was very proud of having been able to make my poem into the shape of something. Thanks in fact to, to Juan Pablo, who's right here. Thank you for that. Who helped me with all of the, the graphic part of it. Um, if you will linger with me in Mauritius for a moment longer, I'd like to read a poem called Zodien or a short history of Mauritius. It has a bit of Creole in it. And I'm not sure, uh, well, I'm, I'm actually pretty sure there's no Creole speakers among the audience. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure if I should screen share or if you'll just follow along what you prefer, Sean. Uh, whatever makes you the most comfortable. If you'd like to screen share, that's fine with me. We can give you permissions. I think perhaps you already have it, but uh, whatever you whatever you prefer is fine. You know what? Actually, I will just read it because it's three in the morning. Let's just read it and you guys can like get the feel of it. And if you want to know more, I will send you a copy of it. Okay. Wonderful. All right. So this is Zodia, a short history of Mauritius. Zodia means they say. So many things, Montanzo, dear. They say, they say the Dutchman came and he ate the dodo. Curious bird, stupid bird. So dear, independence will be won with by the wits of the Indian. Papi Indian, nous besoin aller, nous besoin get out. So dear, le père de la nation has the ear of the queen. They say, they say things are better in Australia, in UK. In South Africa, they don't say Creole, Zodiac, colored. Ma tante in allée last year, 65, before the riot started. Là-bas tout propre, she says. Là-bas seulement un bon dimoun. Nice people, they say. Zotin met ban under the mountain en balater. They say Mauritius is still the star of the Indian Ocean. They say Parti Socialiste pour sauver nos pays. Zodiac, 10,000 rupees, c'est rien. They say, sorti là, sorti là. 
qui fait qu'il n'y a pas de reste tranquille? They say the hungry tourists came down and devoured our coastline in the south. The east is all we have left. Ramgulam, they say, has lined his own pockets. They only say it once. They say, look to the horizon, thick and black. We blame Japan. Zodia, the island is retracting inwards. They say, nous îles bivines bien grands. No more beaches, no more fish. Ban Pecher, Zotisan, has pulled down by the river mouth. Jognot Zodia, his hands live under the table. Zodbam, his Soban Kamrad, their coffers are full. Farata, from six to 25 rupees. They say, we have no language. They say, if bus don't kill you, hôpital will. They say, Pakosi, stop saying all these things. We say, reste tranquille. Dernière fois qu'il can cause, Zodisan, his blood, it runs beneath the mountain, out beyond the reef, into the sea that you left behind. Thank you. Um, I'm always happy to share that poem because you get a little bit of a feel of what Creole is. It's a beautiful language mixed of, as every Creole is mixed of the colonial languages at the time. So it's a mix of French with English syntax with bits of, of um, Hindi, Arab, all sorts. And basically the, the, the basis of that poem Zodzia, is the, um, a protest the, the, of the censorship that is happening because when people speak out against the Mauritian government, even though Mauritius is known as a paradise island, um, they tend to disappear and their social media disappears and their family disappears. So um, it's very hard again, as someone who is away from Mauritius, hearing these as things, as rumors and, and uh, whispers online and otherwise, one feels very powerless sometimes. And I know we say poetry is powerful, but sometimes we write it and we think, but what does that mean? And although that's a poem I'm incredibly proud of, it is one that led me to question what is the power of poetry, ultimately, beyond personal therapy for the poet and, and perhaps a support for a few of them, the readers. Um, could I read one more, Sean? I think we have time for one more. Yes, thank you. Okay, so this is another one that I've been working on recently. Um, part of a a whole other series of poems that I'm writing. And in fact, I'm always delighted when I do events to discover that my co-speakers are people I know. Jen, I, I was following you and I didn't realize, I mean, congratulations on the novel and everything, but I didn't realize I had read one of your poems ages ago in Waxwing about, about loss. And I never, you know, we don't, I don't know, it like the, the, the tag of the person and whatever it, it kind of got lost in my brain. And I was just looking over your, your work and Jose's work and I was like, but I know her, I know her. And uh, I love that poem. I can't remember the name of it, but it was, oh, it was, it, it, it reached out through the, the page while well, the phone and it did what it had to do in my heart and in my soul. So thank you for that. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm writing about as well, a collection on, on motherhood, on miscarriage, on loss, but also on the mother, being the mother of an immigrant and how complicated that can be um, and mental health, etc. So this is one of those poems. It's called A Poem About Grief or My Daughter or My Body or Any Number of Things. What am I going to do with you? I have found no box to put you in, no container that would house your unwieldiness. What am I going to do with you? With the best, best parts of me I've peeled off like a hangnail and wrapped you up in. With the weight and the shame and the cross-referencing of grief, ecstasy and abandon, I think it would be wrong to bury you. Perhaps I'll cover you in flowers and fine lines, aeroplanes and other ephemeral things. What am I going to do with you? Weave you into some great tapestry, coax you out of hiding with a stick. 
or some great sugary treat? What is one to do with you, to all, with all of you, with the whole almighty lot of you? I'm ill-equipped. I have no formal training. My sails are depleted. The stars are all crouching behind the clouds. What am I going to do with you? A poem? A petticoat? Sticks? A hole in the ground. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was wonderful. It's so different, you know, when you read someone's work on paper and then to hear them speak it in their own voice with the pronunciations and the accent and, and in your case, obviously all the different languages. It's just such a wonderful tapestry. And I feel so honored that you woke up in the middle of the night to share this with oh, us. Oh, no, it was my pleasure. I was so excited. And I actually freaked out this morning because I'm on holiday. And when you're on holiday, you know, there's no sense of time. Right. And I was like, oh, it's Sunday. And uh, <laughs> I didn't want to miss it for the world. Thank you so much for contacting me. Thank you for putting me with such an amazing, intimidating lineup. I mean, you two poets are amazing. Um, and yeah, thank you. And thank you all for being here. If anyone was here just to see me, thank you. Alrighty. Um, well, I think we're going to go moving right along. Um, our next poet is the incredible Jen Givan, a Mexican-American and indigenous poet, novelist, and transformational coach <clears throat> from the Southwestern Desert and the recipient of poetry fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and Penn Rosenthal Emerging Voices. Jen is the author of five full-length poetry collections, most recently Belly to the Brutal from Wesleyan University Press, and the novels Trinity Site, Jubilee, and most recently River Woman Demon, uh, River Demon from Blackstone Press. Her work has appeared in The New Republic, The Nation, Poetry, and many others. You can follow her at jennifergivon.com. And she's also on Twitter and probably also all the other uh, social media uh, platforms. So Jen, if you are feeling up to it, please take it away. Yes, thank you so much. I'm just setting my timer here. Um, and then I'm a little sick, so my voice might be a little scratchy and I might need to drink some of my hot herbal tea while I'm reading, but this is my newest book, Belly to the Brutal from Wesleyan University Press. I'm so excited. I think I'll just read poems. I don't think I'll really talk in between one because my brain is too foggy to think of anything interesting to say <laughs> that's more interesting. I can't think of anything more interesting than what I already wrote in the poem, so uh, I'll just read them. And then the other reason is that it's a brand new book and I haven't really had the chance to speak these aloud. And I feel like um, I want to honor what is written in the poems. I, I've done a lot of mothering work um, in this book. And one, one quick preface is that um, I consider this book to be a kind of a healing intergenerational trauma through the bloodlines of mothers and daughters. And so it's while I'm mothering on the page, which means to know, mother the little girl that I was and mother my own children, as well as, you know, the little girl inside of my mom and my grandma, my great grandma, and, you know, all of us all, so that I'm healing backward and then forward in time. And you'll see through the poems too, that the wisdom of my children comes into this quite a bit as well. So um, I wanted to, I'm grateful to be here to speak these aloud. Thank you so much. This first one is, I am dark, I am forest. I carried a bowl of menudo into the forest. I carried my bisabuela's tripas, not daring ask whose intestines I carried, con cilantro y radish y cebolla chopped fine. 
and carried the sewing machine they'd slip-stitched her to in the garment district downtown. I carried the forest crackling against asphalt where her chanclas burnt and melted, so I carried her to. I wore no red. I bore no basket. There was no forest but an avocado tree in the backyard of the house they made her sell to get her Medicare for her diabetes shots. I carried her sugar water. A hummingbird, great-granddaughter, I carried her flickering, her black and white screened. I carried her face, the scars, her warped esposo left her granddaughter. Carried those wounds through the womb, not wolf, but blue-eyed man. I stirred the menudo, my belly, the pot scalding into the forest I carried, and that tree I chopped down, chopped into a boat that carried my mother and my bisabuela across the chili red sopa, the blood water broth, named her daughter. What forest have we made for her? I cannot see. I carried darkness into that forest and sliced it out. So this next one is called Girl Child Prophetess. My daughter in her whitewashed jean dress with butterfly skirt says she wants to stay home from school with me. And my immediate thought, pull the car away from the drop-off curb with her still in it. Adulting, I've heard, is understanding our mother's anger when we forgot to take the chicken out of the freezer. I'm not a grown-up mother. I never let anything thaw. I won't even handle raw poultry. I wanted to bring my daughter home because I'm lonely. And she says the loveliest philosophical things in the way of an eight-year-old girl child I don't think I've traumatized or injected with the venom of girl wounds as I was in my wired girl coop. No backhand popping her mouth. No sick hand pulling the gauze of her butterfly skirt. I sometimes relive through her. She takes me through that dark forest, teaches me which wolves are prey, how not to be afraid. Still, the mother fear returns. It never fades, that tummy sick, as if I were high wiring on my head. I don't say this aloud, but wonder if she's portending some terrible fate, the way of empaths and witches which I'm gathering like dandelions in her sweet fields, relearning what my battered mother stripped. I almost drive away my girl beside me. Instead, I open the door and spill her out from cave mouth or into, I cannot know and haven't known since she slid from me screaming, but so damn brave I follow her, my mother heart stringing behind her, kite of still wet wings she holds and asserts into a future of sky this way. This next one, I haven't had a chance. I don't think I've really read this one aloud at all. Um, and it's called The Birds. And you can see from the cover, I'm obsessed with birds. And this one reminded me of Frida's two, uh, Frida Kahlo's two Fridas um, holding hands and holding each other's hearts. And there's a flower here and a heart here. 
And I'm obsessed with birds. If you've read any of my other books, you know that surreal birds are my jam. And so um, this is called The Birds and it's just based on a, on a real encounter I had with a bird, um, a mother and her fledglings in my um, front yard. The birds nest in the stinging mallow where an orange-eyed mother guarding her slick new birth regards me with the careful measure I've given every stranger since the rupture. Trick of the mind, telling a story that coheres, that doesn't ooze undone as I've oozed. Hatchling as the click of an oven timer gone off early and trusted over the prick to the gooey center. I pass her thus, each wary for our own reason. I flick pictures of the patient mother who at first glance seems to smother her nestlings. Their parkas marking days into gossamer feathers I remember as the softness of before. Always in a story must come a time when nothing happened. An unwinding, a zeroing, a settling the score of another story's end. Trick of the heart not to see time for what it is, a thief, a distraction, a trickster god come to feign with ribbon and bow, shrouding scissors behind his back for clipping at the umbilicus. For in the final shudder, I startle mother and fledglings into a wreck of plume and reed, chiding myself for abandoned nest and later and always Concrete proof smattering the yard. Those younglings weren't ready, not by far. So this one is for my son. And this was, he's 15 now, so this was four years ago. And it's called The Flash. My 11-year-old son has forgotten not to eat on my bed. He loves watching the flash from my room with the widest windows, the warmest place in our house each winter, and with the coneflower warmth of his brown skin veiled in his bright red suit, he tucks his kinky curls under the cap and ghosts from room to room undetected, sneaking cookies till I climb beside him into a pile of crumbs. You're grounded, I echo and he is sobbing. But what he says catches the pit of wax burning always inside me. We got him into special ed classes last year after years of fighting with his teachers and breakdowns over homework and his father yelling, you've got to learn to listen, where I kept insisting he's trying. He just doesn't understand. And here he slides onto my floor, tears and mucus streaming down his cheeks onto the superhero costume he wears 24 seven. The toddlers at the park following him around perennially because he's Iron Man, Flash, Captain America. Mama, I don't know what's wrong with me. Between hiccuping sobs, I forgot I was hungry. Your bed is warm. I'm afraid I'll go to jail when I'm grown. I'm afraid I'm bad. I always do the wrong thing. I'm already hugging him on the floor where I've joined him as sirens flick on screen, thinking of how his little sister ties his shoes, how years back his best friend scolded, you have to learn to tie your shoes, Jer, 
Do you want your mom to tie them for you when you're 20? And we laughed before we realized we should not have been laughing. How at night I watch him breathing and pray because when I screamed at his father for screaming at him, he said he has to learn to listen. I'm trying to keep him safe. Much later, I ask our boy with a milkshake in his hand what he would do if the police, like they did to his daddy in Texas, he beeps, electronic Jeremiah is not here right now. Please leave a message. He flashes so quick, I never see him vanish. Okay, I think we have a little bit more time here. I'm gonna change pace a little bit. So um, the first section and the third section are very much about mothering my own children. Whereas the middle section uh, is about my own girlhood and going back and kind of um, be receiving myself through the, you know, the eyes of a mother and kind of remothering myself. So this one is called Rubble Girl. Scissor slips, girl. Oh, dancing with rust and knives for lips. Oh, sluicy girl. You money trouble, dirty shower girl. Pickpocket, firecracker, sticky honey girl, yucca mouth girl. Cutting flower heads and sewing candy skulls for scrubbing memories. Sugar girl, tequila sick and toilet bowl again girl, hungry girl. You unstitched razor girl, blade girl. Grubby necked and spitting girl or swallowing. Head down girl, stomach pitted. Fine girl, gumming to sidewalk, pack called girl. Escape girl, oh, puck plucking bones from graves girl, rising girl, rising and rising girl. Teach me again how to live that loose, that tumble down before I slit the vein girl and never mother us whole. I think I have time. Oh, I might have time for two more, but. Here's one that is um, harkens back to my first poetry collection, which was called um, Landscape with Headless Mama. So this one is called Headless Mama Returns, Christmas 18 Refrain. And a lot of my poems also deal with mental health, um, mothering through mental health issues. And so this one is very much about um, mental health as well as uh, miscarriage. Um, and so um, content warning there, um, it's, it's all through metaphor though. Headless Mama Returns, Christmas 18 Refrain. Rejoice in the sun, I'm sorry, let me start over. <laughs> okay. Rejoice in the snow flowers in the veins. Rejoice in the bathtub, salt water clogging the windpipe, it's brittle sugar crystals in the lungs in the petals blooming in the water after curatage, scarlet rash of ornaments, oh globular berries staining the porcelain. We pass the darkened library on the way to my mother's house so the kids can light advent candles. I've strung Christmas lights to the wall with a Stranger Things alphabet, Ouija to the upside down, I'll scry, I'll scry scream to contact her. Girl, I heaved into the toilet bowl. Girl, I let go each time a man fucked me over. 
we passed the library past dark and the librarians form a line under the exit at closing i imagine habits i imagine knives for teeth typewriters for hearts the librarians jackrabbit they devour the dogs my children at my mother's table love jesus the plants in my mother's kitchen still bloom on the seal while my mother's tongue wilts on my blue altar. And even Frida in her Santos candle glares in disapproval. I've drowned them. The leaves blanch, a sick mucus, a bulbous wax, a loaf of soggy bread around my belly and thighs in the milky soap water. I scrub and scrub the pinkening of poultry I've become. There was a hairbrush once, a broom handle. There was a channeling in a tunnel. Oh, burst, oh, pop, oh, clank, oh, fuck my swollen bell of brain. If no candles light when we scratch the match, hath God forsaken, where have the librarians prowled off to with their curses? Once upon a time, a mother lost her goddamn mind. I scrape the blackened foil from the cake I've burnt. Oh, baby, I carry to the ledge. I've brought only the living ones to pray for strength. For when their mama hollows a wall, marrows a bone, and the headless girls return to her, and the bodies rise like steam from her chest, and she flings her rust, her knives, and uplifts the blanket of ribcage to the cavernous tomb of sky. Since I've been reading mothering poems, I have time for one more, I realized, and I want to read one that I feel like uh, I was creating a kind of a, my own language here with the poems, this, with these poems. I think I have time for this one. I'll, probably, I'll try to read it fast. <laughs> this one is called Creation Story. Before bed, my small yets ask if I'll meet them at the signpost we create in sleep. And when they wake, they'll ask, do I remember? I take us to the clipping place, dip our wasp stung faces toward the wind. It licks us till we brine. We dream the world won't end. Not till the glob we've wadded in our pockets is stuck safe behind our ears. Till that gumball machine infection pink has swallowed more than it could ever spit out. Wake up, my small yet's call to the husky dawn. An orangesicle moon thickens behind clouds downriver toward gulf's hungry maw. Before the tidy plots for yards and brick on brick for keeping entamed creatures and making us wilds climb, there was a teeming desert called Stubborn Heart, called Never Seed. Scrub oak yawned its coyote breath, tumbleweed married strum of cedar, danced cane chola down the aisle, spit fire ants into prickly pear and spindle john everywhere, the search for joy like thirst, like sucking sand for water, like sugar spun between teeth. What comes next, mama? When the crinkled bags of hot funyuns whittle in their rattling cans and we all snake away, what then? They lick their chilly red paws, they wait, I pool my stock, bouillon in the ruddy broth, the mothered pot. The next, shuddering. The clocks unspool, clicks disengage, and even the safe cakes disintegrate from the last jars. We shake the beakers at our throats and release the bees from our eyelids. We slip into feral skins, mothered pelts, and claw back to the blackest scales I've bartered every moment for. 
not the planks enclosing us from heat, rain, predator through our hunger, sorry, though our hunger has meant these comforts. But when the meat cutter, sorry, when the meat cut matter in our bellies settles and the tax collecting God has come to make good on its promises to slink the fleece from off our necks, the feathers from our primal backs, then my small yet, then at the very end, the very least, this, once in a great while, a particle opens its one risk eye, and from that aperture, every slurried sunrise, creatures, your world wet noses, snuff this world from its strangeness as you chase what we've unearthed together. Carry us home. Thank you so much. Jeez Louise, thank you. <laughs> Jen, that was just spectacular. I would never know that you were sick, first of all. You read beautifully. So congratulations for that. And thanks again. Your poems are just so, so powerful. Um, ah, I'm gloating. This is the best reading. I have the best people. Yay. <laughs> all right. And so our final poet today is Jose Hernandez Diaz. Um, he is a 2017 NEA Poetry Fellow. He's the author of The Fire Eater from Texas Review Press and Bad Mexican, Bad American, which is coming out in a couple of years from Acre Books. His work appears in American Poetry Review, Bennington Review, Boulevard, Conduit, Huizache, Iowa Review, the Missouri Review, Poetry. I mean, pretty much, you know, anywhere you can think of, he's in it. He's posting on Twitter on like a three times a day basis about his latest, you know, publications. So, you know, creating envy and the rest of us poets out there. Um, and he also teaches writing for various organizations, including Beyond Baroque, Literal Magazine, the Writers Center in DC and elsewhere. Please everybody welcome Jose. And so Jose, if you are all set, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Glenn. Honored to read with Elizabeth and Jen. Those are great readings. Um, yeah, I guess I'll just get right into it. I'm gonna read some new work and uh, mostly new work because like Elizabeth said, I've kind of been getting, um, you know, I've been reading a lot of the same stuff, so I wanna mix it up. And um, the first prose poem I'm gonna read is called Autumnal Heart, and it is from one of my um, manuscripts. I woke up from a deep sleep and discovered it was autumn inside my heart. Not that I have a heart anymore. It ran away with the beautiful stripper. My once present heart was too sensitive for this world anyway. I'm glad it's gone, turned into red leaves, yellow leaves, brown leaves. My faded heart was like an autumn pumpkin waiting for someone to carve a face on it. I place what is left of my jack-o'-lantern heart in front of my house for Halloween. It scares the neighbors and mail carriers, monster, goal that it's always been. Uh, this next one is forthcoming in Chicago Quarterly Review, The Idealist. I was abandoned by the army because I believed in the power of flowers to devour our enemies. They called me crazy, said I was an idealist and a dreamer. They abandoned me in the middle of the jungle, not far from the enemy. I began my trek toward the distant coast. I survived on fresh oxalis and snails. For a second, I played dead to avoid a large leopard. I darted around like a fugitive ballerino. I pirouetted with the breeze of the setting sun, 
When I finally arrived at the ocean, I knelt to my inner compass and thanked the ancient earth. Tomorrow, I'd built a raft and sell away to freedom. Um, this next one, I grew up in a, originally in Northern Orange County. And though I did not surf, a lot of my friends surfed and bodyboarded. And I was just a fan of sort of the, the counterculture and, and uh, just sort of the freedom aspect related to surfing. Though, I, though as I say, I, I'm not a surfer. Um, it's called Sunday Waves. I was at the beach painting a surfer riding a wave onto a canvas when suddenly the ocean water from the painting splashed onto my toes. The surfer came to life in front of my atheist eyes, only as it turns out, he was the statue David by Michelangelo. The statue caught some gnarly waves. He was a natural, of course. The statue glided on the water like a dream. The statue of David showboated for the Lady Madonna statues in the crowd. Somehow this all made sense to us. Somehow this all made sense to all of us, despite logic. It was Sunday morning, after all. I watched in amazement with the crowd of local surfers and beach enthusiasts. At the end of the session, we gave the statue a standing ovation and said a Hail Mary. Hail Mary full of grace. Blessed are the waves. Um, this next one is a, a new one that I wrote last month after uh, not writing for a while. So um, it just felt really good to write this one and it's forthcoming in Salamander Magazine. Fresh Flowers. I was walking in a forest when I found a book of prose poems by Charles Baudelaire floating in a calm creek. I knelt into the shallow water and grabbed the book. It was signed by Baudelaire himself or just as likely a forged copy. Nevertheless, I placed the book onto a patch of soft grass beneath the summer sun. It dried with the light breeze like a surfer resting in the sand after an early morning session. After an hour, I picked up the book and began to read. I read for about three hours. Then the moon came up like a wish. I fell asleep in the field by the creek with the book on my chest. The next morning, when the sun woke me, the book was gone. I was confused for a moment until I saw the book floating back in the creek. I dug it out once more and dried it off again. I continued reading by the creek. The French words, poems, and soft pages were like fresh flowers to me. Time became irrelevant. And um, this next one, you know, I'm a big fan of boxing. I don't get out much, but on the weekends, I do watch a lot of boxing with my cousins at their house. And, um, and I thought, why not write an ode to boxing? And it got picked up by a North American review yesterday. So, ode to boxing. You're always there for me on the weekend when I need a good show, something to root for with the beer in hand and the company of cousins shouting, cheering at the spectacle. I want to see a Mexican fighter showing bravery, skill, and a victory. I want to see myself reflected in brown men with Aztec tattoos and short fade haircuts like mine. Sure, it can get violent. The world is also violent. But there is plenty of technique which takes years to master, moving and sticking. These working class men come from backgrounds like mine, tough barrios like mine, with Spanish last names like mine. For now, Monday morning, 
the work week just beginning. Watch my fancy footwork and jab as I swing like a hung, hungry underdog aiming for a title. Um, this next one, as uh, Sean mentioned, I'm on Twitter a lot, and uh, I, I thought I would mess around with one of the um, one of the the trending sort of sarcastic tweets that was trending about. They would start off with "Hey," and then it would like lead into like some very direct and personal matter that was too personal for a, a for a general introduction. Uh, if that makes any sense, I don't think it does, but. So um, this started off as, as just one of those posts that I was writing for that. So it goes, hey, with the intention of going to an independent bookstore with you, both of us fed up with the machinery of capitalism, consumption, the greed. Hey, with the intention of filling the void with your smile, your laugh, your kiss beneath the autumn moon. Hey, with the intention of moving to Montana with you, writing and painting, inspired by the muse of the mundane, living a minimalist lifestyle until they grant us both MacArthur grants and we can afford to fly away to the moon. And um, I have two more. Um, this next one is called Awalita. Um, para mi abuelita, Amalia Guzman. My abuelita is visiting from Mexico when the sun goes down and it starts to get dark, she always says, Está oscuro como la boca de un lobo, dark like a wolf's mouth. She is getting older now, 89 years old. She can't really cook for herself anymore. I try to help as much as I can. She's the best. Yesterday, my brother asked where she was born, Guanajuato or Michoacan. She said Michoacan. She said the last time she went to the rancho where she was born, was a couple of years ago, but she didn't have a good time because it rained and rained. I think maybe they are tears from the sky, tears or rain of celebration for her return. But I wouldn't say such a sentimental thing to her face because she's been hardened by life as an orphan, then getting married and my abuela dies in his forties, having to raise 11 kids on her own. No, I don't say anything but I picture her at her child at home, sitting on the porch, watching the rainfall, wishing her comadres would come by, most of them dead now. Then one of them would say, hola, como estas, Doña Amalia? Tantos años han pasado. So uh, this last one is um, a prose poem that was, that was published in the Yale Review, poem of the week, and uh, it's called a stranger. A man came up to me as I was walking home from the pharmacy. <clears throat> Are you Jose Hernandez Diaz? Yes, I said, who's asking? Do you enjoy sipping tea before bedtime? Well, I do, but what is it to you? I asked. In the ninth grade, did you get cut from the basketball team? I did in fact get cut from the team. Do you sometimes wonder what life would have been like had you married Margo Cisneros? Maybe sometimes, yes, I said. Are you afraid of small talk and long walks in the city? I'm just a little introverted, I said. Does the night sky resemble a dragon of your dreams? Yes, thank you for asking, I said. Did you cry when Muncie hit that home run in the World Series? 
I did cry at that moment, proud of it. Were you born and raised back and forth between LA and Orange County? Story of my life, yes, I said. Does the night sky resemble a dragon of your dreams? Yes, thank you for asking. Yes, thank you. Ah, wonderful. Thank you so much, Jose and Jen and Elizabeth. This has been one of my favorite readings of my the whole history of this series. I'm so thrilled that you got all make it. Um, I think what I really like the most is, is that for all three of these poets, uh, there's a lot of um, obviously magic and surrealism and wordplay. And for me, at least, that was sort of the connecting thread and why I felt that this lineup was going to be so spectacular. Um, and so actually, Jose, if I if I may ask a question and um, Jen and Elizabeth, if you want to chime in, feel free. Um, what is it about sort of your experiences and your approach to poetry that makes you want to choose these particular forms, right? So for Jose, Jose writes prose poetry, which I think is a little bit um, more experimental than uh, sort of what the general public thinks of when they think of poetry. So um, I'm wondering, you know, if you could talk about what pushes you in that direction. I don't know exactly. I mean, I've always been into sort of subversive art, whether it be like indie rock when I was younger, underground hip hop. I sort of wanted to be different. You know, I didn't really like mainstream approaches to art. I found them sort of artificial and generic. And um, so prose poetry was sort of this hybrid form that was new and subversive and revolutionary. And, and you could have persona and surrealism. And it didn't necessarily have to be about your, your life directly, which I do write about that as well. But it was just a change of pace from that initial uh, political, personal poetry that I was initially drawn to. So it was a change of pace. And I initially wanted to be a short story writer. So it was sort of both worlds, you know, poetry and um, and short stories, fiction, short fiction. And also it was like an escape from reality. You know what I mean? I've dealt with mental health issues. I've dealt with a lot of stuff that this was just like an escape. Um, I remember one time I was talking to somebody who was doing time and, and they were, I was telling them about reading like informed literature and, I noticed a lot of people read a lot in, when they're locked up and and they were saying that they preferred science fiction because it was like an escape. And to me, that, that sort of works for me with prose poetry as well. It's sort of an escape from reality and and um, a, way to, a way for me to always um, arrive at those subversive arts that I, that I initially was drawn to. Oh, cool, thank you. Um, and so, Jen, I guess for you, the question, if we can morph it to, let's talk about magic and how do you pull that in and, and where does that come from for you? Because I feel like that's also, you know, um, it is a little subversive. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Jose, and I feel similarly, I write about trauma in my own life, um, but also like working to heal it. And so I feel like writing is the magic and I see that like, like my mom, for instance, is a healer, you know, and like my abuela was um, like a kitchen witch, you know, she was like a kitchen bruja um, and that like her magic came through her food. Um, mine is my writing and it comes through on the page and I see the poems and my novels as a spell, if you will. Um, and so I know that often it has changed my own heart. And I think that very real change that happens inside of me 
um, is what I infuse into the poems. And so I've had so many people tell me like this resonates with them on like a really deep um, heart level or spiritual level. And I think that's because I'm really infusing that into, um, into the poems and the stories. And then the last thing I wanted to say about this is that I go into what I think of as the underbelly, which is like the dark, uh, the duende, the loam, where a lot of that, like, that we're afraid to talk about that's taboo, you know, especially like mothering through mental illness, for instance, like we think we put mothers on this pedestal, but it's like, no, mothering is hard and dark. And like, sometimes we deal with very dark thoughts and, um, you know, we're bringing our, our whole past into a mother you know and so how do we like how do we raise healthy children when we might not necessarily be healthy ourselves and so I go into that space really fearlessly um, because I have a strong tether that I'm holding on to as like a, a rope that I've tied around my waist which is my family connection you know and um, like really knowing who I am and why I'm doing this and so I dive into that and then I bring up that darkness onto the page and a lot of times it comes out just like all over the place. It's the mud that I bring up. And so I'll write just like pages and pages. And people ask me, do I craft it just like that? You know, do I craft it as a sonnet? Or most of the time, no, I bring it up as mud on the page. And then I start to form it either into a poem that's had a specific form, a specific structure, or eventually it might become a novel, which is why I often birth twins, where I have a, a novel and a poetry collection that come out at once because it was all this mud that came out. And then I'm like, okay, I'm forming it. And it just starts to morph into different things, usually prose and poetry at the same time. <laughs> so. That is really cool. I don't know of anybody else who does that where, where they have twins. That is really neat. <laughs> Thank you. And so Elizabeth, for you, um, I am super curious about how you weave all the different languages into your poems. Because for me, I, I studied uh, different languages through high school and, and through college, um, you know, and I adore reading and listening to languages, even if I don't know them, right? So like my family's native tongue is Welsh, which I mean, how many people speak Welsh in the United States? Three. So, and I'm definitely not one of them, but like, I love to hear the music in the language. Um, I was recently listening to Gaelic and it stunned me how it almost sounds identical to Welsh. But so having the Creole and a um, little bit of Spanish and some French, and I felt like, oh, I can, I can kind of recognize a lot of these words. I kind of get it. So um, anyway, I will stop talking. I would love to hear <laughs> from you about how that uh, morphs into the magic that comes out on your pages. Well, language for me is, uh, is, is, is many things. It's that I've grown up uh, bilingual, trilingual. I've lived all over the world um, and I do love language. I think poets generally love language anyway. That must be one of the reasons why they write poetry if they've chosen that as their artistic means. Um, but it, it, there's many reasons. And um, when you talk about being subversive, I, I've always found myself in my life and in my writing in a position of, of subversion because I don't by nature fit into any box, whether it's, and I don't mean that like, I'm so unique. I mean that literally, like I, I don't fit into any ethnic box, any linguistic box. You ask where I'm from, I'll tell you, ten, you know, 10 different countries, <coughs> the things I've studied, the things I've done with my life. I've always been a little bit hard to, to, put in any uh, cas, as we say in, in French. And uh, 
that is difficult to live with because we live in a world that is made of tiny boxes. But at the same time, I've come to a point in my life and poetry accompanied me and, and occurred at the same time where I'm like, you know what, I really do not care. And um, the beauty of poetry is that it is what you make of it. It does not have an owner. It does not have a, a managing entity organization. And so I, my approach with languages is pretty much the same. My Creole, uh, in fact, I write extensively about this in my poetry. I was never allowed to speak Creole because it was considered a slave language. So my Creole is actually like when I'm here and I speak, just today I spoke to someone on the beach and they were like, where are you from? <laughs> because my Creole is not quite, quite authentic sounding, but that doesn't mean I'm not gonna use it because I am claiming that right back. And I'm not a native Spanish speaker. And obviously, you know, there's obviously respect to be had for spaces that are needed for Latin writers, which I don't touch at all, obviously. But no one's gonna tell me I can't write in Spanish. If my muse is sending me 700 love poems in Spanish, then I'm gonna please him. So, so there's also that. But when it comes to weaving the poems, uh, the languages into the poems, sometimes it happens very naturally. There will be instances, I think as any bilingual speaker knows, where you literally don't have a word for that, or it just sounds so much better in another language, or it encapsulates it so much better. Um, why would you say it in some faint, half-hearted, diluted way when you can say it full force in another language? And also coming to break away from the expectation that literature literature that is worth anything, poetry that is worth anything, belongs to the English-speaking world. I mean, what the hell is that about? And expecting my readers to do better, that's what I love about the indie writing community, is people are like, yeah, I, I didn't understand it, but I love that. <laughs> Not being like, okay, let me let me hold your hand, and and because, you know, you little English speaker um, from the nor from the Northern Hemisphere, you won't be able to, you know, come on now, if you, you really want to know, you, you dig a little bit. And I think the more that we can introduce those that diversity of voices and the more we can ask the reader to step up to the plate the better it is I mean here I am as I said with my little Creole language from a tiny island nation that no one's ever heard of but yes I expect you guys to look up what those words mean and yes I expect you now to go and be like oh I never knew where Mauritius was not you personally obviously this is an example but if you do I'll be very happy um I think I think that is all part of of a statement that you're making First of all, by taking the language and saying, I'm going to do with it what I need to for it to serve me and my purpose of the poem, with respect, obviously, to the language and the history and the culture and whatever it is I'm taking. And secondly, I know that the reader is intelligent and has enough agency to work their way through this and to enjoy the art piece for what it is. So that's very important for me. What's interesting, though, is that after Caroncito, now there's a lot of, my, my, my muse refused to work in French. I, although it's such a beautiful, stunning language, it just refuses. I put a word in French in there and it just shuts down. He's like, nope, you've ruined it. Now I'm not going to speak to you for two weeks. So so he's really, really bent on Spanish. Um, but now he's shifting a little bit, little bit into French, but I don't want to, I don't want to frighten him away by by writing too much in that language. So I mean, in terms of actual writing, my muse does what he wants, and I'm just his faithful servant. So I hope that answered your question. I might be rambling. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, wonderful rambling. <laughs> that was, yes, you did answer my question. So thank you. And thank all of you so much. Thank you, Jen and Jose. And thank you for coming and reading. And thank you to the audience who signed up and joined us all. Uh, I, this has been a 
absolutely spectacular Sunday afternoon for me. So I will leave you in gratitude. Please come back next month. We have a reading, um, whatever the second Sunday is. I forget the date. I think it's the 10th, maybe. I don't know. Um, but I would be delighted to see all of you back. Um, have a lovely rest of your day or night and uh, get some good sleep. Thank you all. Thank you.